Today we are going to finish chapter 3 of Colossians, and it's only going to take us two weeks to get through chapter 4, so we are almost done with our study of this book. And as I've been reading it, I've kind of noticed Paul's approach, it seems to be, you could visualize it as starting with a really, really wide perspective, really wide angle lens, and then progressively zooming in closer and closer and closer and closer because he starts out with these big cosmic pictures of Jesus being the firstborn of all creation and, and, and all these big picture things. And then he starts talking about what it looks like to actually commit to Jesus. And we looked at, uh, the picture gets just closer and closer to everyday life. So the last few weeks we've been talking about um, the, act, the virtues and the vices that uh, he identifies, the vices that you should give up and the virtues that you should adopt. And this week, we are going to get even closer into how you apply the gospel to your everyday life. This is going to be um, uncomfortably close, right? This is where he zooms in too far, and Paul gets to meddling in things that he ought not to touch on. And he gets into one of those passages that makes pastors really, really uh, nervous because it is touching on such intimate things and such controversial things in our culture. And this is going to tell you how to live your everyday life in ways that you don't want it to. Um, but that's what the Bible says, and so we're going to dig into it, and we're going to sort this out. So um, I will encourage you, if you have your Bible with you, to have it open to Colossians chapter 3, starting in verse 18. And I'll also invite you, if you're able, to stand for the reading of God's Word. Actually, I'm going to start in verse 17 because the paragraph breaks are not in the original Bible, and I think it's important to, to carry it through. Whatever you do, in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and don't be bitter toward them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not exasperate your children so that they won't become discouraged. Slaves, obey your human masters in everything. Don't work only while being watched as people pleasers, but work wholeheartedly, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do it from the heart as, people, as something done for the Lord and not for people, knowing that you will receive the reward of an inheritance from the Lord. You serve the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for whatever wrong he has done, and there is no favoritism. Masters, deal with your slaves justly and fairly, since you know that you too have a master in heaven. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. You may be seated. So there are several passages that touch on this idea throughout the New Testament. There's three or four. And they are very controversial because as soon as you mention them, as soon as you read it, it brings up conflicting perspectives from people. So there are some people who are really excited to get to this passage because it really affirms what they believe is the biblical perspective on um, gender roles and hierarchy and headship, and, and they're really excited because this is where we get the traditional hierarchies and the family, conservative family values, and this is what the world needs, right? We need men, in, we need you know, fathers in charge and husbands in charge, and we need the hierarchy, and yeah. And it, see, it's right there in black and white. 
And then on the other side, you have the people who are really not excited to read this passage because it goes against everything that they believe or want to believe the gospel is about. In fact, it's, it's a little bit ironic in my class, uh, my doctoral class I'm taking right now, this last week, I had, uh, we had our readings on um, liberation theology and feminist theology and a lot of these theologies that are dedicated to the idea of liberating some particular part of society and the idea that that is a core principle of the gospel. And so for that perspective, they, we really struggle with this passage, or they really struggle with this passage and say, man, we got to really explain this. How does this fit? Because the core of the gospel is liberation. And so we'll get into things like, um, you know, this is culturally relative to the, to the time that Paul was in and, and all these different things to try and explain away a passage like this, or we just don't preach on it. The truth is that neither one of those perspectives accurately encapsulates what Paul is saying. In both cases, both of those perspectives are missing the point that Paul is actually making. Paul, Paul's teachings on power, which is what this is ultimately about, right? This is power dynamics. They do not fit any of the modern perspectives. And so neither side, neither one of those perspectives is actually representing what Paul is saying. We'll start with the, the liberation view, that, that the gospel is about liberating individuals to be free and self-determinate, and, and, and that's what the gospel is supposed to be for everyone. That has, it's really hard to then explain how Paul would say, wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as is fitting the Lord. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Slaves, obey your human masters in everything. I try to remember as a, as a general principle of biblical interpretation, compare the way a particular school of thought talks to the way the Bible talks. Would you ever see a person from that school of thought say the things that are in the Bible? And invariably, with every group, you get to places where you say, nope, no good Calvinist would ever say that it is not God's will that any should perish, right? They would never say those words. And these are words that a lot of people, a lot of biblical interpreters would simply never say because they don't believe it. But Paul is telling these people in these different situations to submit. Now, it's important to recognize Paul is not um, establishing these power dynamics. He is not saying men should have power over women, Mass, there should be slavery. People should own other people. He is, just, he is telling Christians how to behave in a system that is already given. There is nothing Paul can do to change the fact that men are legal guardians of their wives in the Roman legal system. They simply are legally responsible for their wives. He can't change that. And masters do own their slaves. That can't be changed. They could free the slaves, but the system of slavery, you can't just say, don't. It's still a legal reality. So what he actually is saying here is that Paul teaches Christians to live within the power structures of their society. Nowhere in the Bible does Paul or anybody else say that Christians should overthrow the society that they're in. It does tell them to make changes to their particular society, but it never says that they should overthrow the systems around them. He tells them to live within the system that they are in. So in that sense, Paul is not a liberationist. However, 
already you should, we should, if we were from his original culture, we would already be seeing warning bells that he is not a traditionalist either for one simple reason. If Paul was a traditionalist who was standing up for traditional family values at the time, he would not have bothered even speaking to women, children, or slaves. Because Paul is getting into a kind of literature that is common back then. We have Roman versions of this. It's called the household code. But nobody else but Paul bothers to speak to women, children, or slaves. They just tell the fathers and the husbands, this is what you should make people do. It doesn't matter what the wives, children, or slaves think. They're, they don't get to decide. It doesn't matter because you're going to make them, the dad or the, the husband is going to make them do whatever's right. So just talk to the person in charge. So the very fact that Paul actually treats women and slaves and um, children as responsible actors, as people who have a choice, shows that he is saying something very different from just saying, yay, hierarchies are good. Okay? So he's not saying we should revolt against the power structures of authority, but he's also not saying, he's also not baptizing them and saying this is the way it should be. Because what he also says, when he does give instructions to people in the powerful positions in these relationships, he says, husbands, love your wives and don't be bitter toward them. Now for us, it's like, yeah, of course you're going to love your wife. That's what spouses do. That's what you promised to do. That wasn't the, what the culture believed at the time. A husband actually was not obligated to love his wife. And it wasn't even necessarily expected. His wife was the person who was going to have his legitimate children, and that was about it. And he could do whatever else he wanted. But when he says, love your wife, that means be committed to her good. And when he says, don't be bitter toward them, that word bitter, it's more complex than bitter. It actually means don't, don't uh, abuse your power over them. What he is saying is that Husbands, you have been given more power than your wife, so use the power that you have been given for their benefit. And it's the same thing that he says with, with fathers. He says, fathers, don't exasperate your children so they won't become discouraged. The, the language that he's using there is the same kind of language that the Old Testament uses for the kind of crimes that children could be punished for. They could be punished for being exasperated and discouraged. And what Paul is saying is, fathers, you're responsible for that. You don't get to just parent your kids however you want and blame them for reacting badly. You are responsible for how you treat your children. You're supposed to raise them up so they don't get to that point of being exasperated and discouraged. So fathers, you don't just get to own your kids. You're actually responsible for raising them well for their sake. And he says, masters, deal with your slaves justly and fairly. One thing we have to do when we read the Bible is we always have to remember when they use words like just and fair, that they're using it according to the Bible's definition of justice and fairness. We think that there's just a neutral definition of justice and fairness, but there isn't. And the Bible has its own definition. And when you say treat them justly and fairly, that means treat them as, the kind, as what the Bible says they are. And the Bible says they are people created in the image of God. And the Bible says they are, uh, they are, you know, as they join the church, they're brothers and sisters in Christ. It's interesting that one of the people journeying with this letter is a guy named Onesimus, who is an escaped slave, who is going back to the guy who owned him, who is a part of the church in Colossae. And Paul is going to tell Onesimus to embrace uh, he's going he's to tell uh, Philemon to embrace Onesimus as a brother. So what's happening here is that Paul is teaching Christians to use the power that they have 
for the benefit of the less powerful. Because here's the thing, we like to, we like to look at things in, in dynamics or in, in binaries, like you're either, on you're either powerful or powerless, you're either in the middle or you're marginalized. The truth is that it's a whole range and everybody is more powerful than somebody and less powerful than somebody else. Right, like you know there's feminist theology and there's womanist theology? You know what the difference is? Feminist theology was started by white women. And then there were African-American women who came along and said, yeah, you have a problem being women, but we're women and black. That's a whole different level of problem. And so there's different dynamics for that. And so there's a different school of thought because it's not just, are you a majority or a minority? It's like, there's all kinds of things that go on with each person. Just because you're a man doesn't mean you're at the top of the pile, right? For the majority of human history, the majority of human beings have been oppressed by somebody. And so the dynamics that he's giving us are how do you treat, what do you do when you're in a dynamic where you have less power? And he says, you don't overthrow the system. And what do you do when you're in the dynamic you have, for those over whom you have more power? You use the power God gives you for their benefit. The idea seems to be that when you have a Christian community, it doesn't really matter who society gives, it shouldn't matter who society gives the power to because they'll use it for each other. Right, So that the law that the society gives, they could give authority to anybody. They could say, put anybody in charge, but because we're a body of believers who follow the instructions that God gives us, we love each other the way God tells us to, we're going to use the power that we've been given for the benefit of the others and not for our own benefit. So they could put the kids in charge and we would still, like they could, they could make any, they could decide redheads are in charge and the redheads wouldn't lord it over anyone else, and we would use it for each other's benefit because society is always going to decide somebody's in charge. It always is. So Paul, what he's doing is he's attacking this problem from a completely different perspective. He is not saying we need to overthrow the system and replace it with a new authority structure. And he's also not saying the authority structure we have now is great, so keep it in place and, and never change it and do exactly what your society tells you should do as a person with power. He's taking a different approach. And so what I want to do from here is I want us to develop this different perspective and, and understand why Paul doesn't get pulled into either of these existing camps. Okay? And it's because he's tracking with the story of the Bible and the, the narrative that the Bible is setting. And if you've been with us in this series, you, you will not be surprised by where I'm going with this. Uh, the first thing that we see in the Bible is that our desire to dominate others comes from our fear of death. The reason we want control over other people, the reason we want to abuse, the reason human beings can't generally be trusted with power over other people is because we use it to medicate our fear of death. On the one hand, you may be afraid of dying, and so you'll use it to make sure uh, you, know, you die last. Or it's because your fear of, you know you're eventually going to die, and so that makes you anxious to make sure your life matters. And one of the ways it matters is by being more powerful than other people. Either way, we are driven by our fear and our anxiety to want to control our circumstances and to control people around us. And you can see this from the very beginning, from the very first time that death was introduced to human beings. When God speaks to Eve after they've sinned in the garden, he says, I will intensify your labor pains. You will bear children with painful effort. Your desire will be for your husband, yet he will rule over you. Now that passage uh, is generally very poorly translated and it obscures what's actually going on. Because if we, what we think is happening is God says, okay, Eve, you messed up, so I'm going to make it really hurt when you give birth to a child, 
and your, your uh, husband is going to have to mind you. He's going to have to be in charge of you to make sure you don't get into more trouble. It's not what's actually happening. First of all, the word that's translated labor is not labor. It's pregnancy. It doesn't refer to what happens at the end of pregnancy. It refers to the whole period of pregnancy. And the word for pain doesn't refer to physical pain. It refers to mental pain. Also, note, so, so what's happening is God is saying that the process of childbearing will be more anxious and fearful, which makes sense considering the fact that she is now going to bring children into a world full of sin and death. If you are a parent, you understand what it means that as soon as that child is born, you have, the way I put it, it's like a, an organ of your body is now outside of your body running around wherever it wants to go, and you can't always protect it. Right? And you're anxious and you're fearful. That's what he's talking about. He's talking about the anxiety of child rearing in a broken world. And if you follow the logic of the argument, because of that anxiety and that fear, you're going to want a partner. Or, you know, there are other reasons you want a partner, but you're going to want to be able to protect yourself and your child. You're going to want someone better able to protect yourself and your child. And so you're going to desire your husband. You're going to want him. You're going to need him around. And what happens when we have unequal power dynamics with broken human beings? What's he going to do when husband realizes you need him? He's going to lord over you. Notice God doesn't tell him to do it. God doesn't set him in place to do it. He says he's going to do it. It's interesting that Adam, one of the ways that you show dominance in, the, in biblical times is if you have the authority to name someone else. Adam doesn't name Eve until after the fall. The first thing he does after the fall is he gives her her name. What you can see in this passage is right off the bat, one of the things that sin does is it puts people in power dynamics with each other and it causes tension. It causes these kinds of hierarchies. The next thing we see is that the fear of death is what leads to oppressive societies. Cain kills his brother and then out of fear for being killed in return, he starts the first city. The first murderer founded the first city to protect himself from death. And that culture culminates in this descendant of Cain named Lamech, who says this poem, it's, I killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain is to be avenged seven times over, then for Lamech it will be 77 times. What he's saying is, I'm in charge, and uh, to, to translate the, po the way the poetry works, he says, a guy, you know, a guy stabbed me in the shoulder, so I killed him. A little boy gave me a paper cut, so I murdered him too. He's saying, I, you, you cross me at all, I will rain down fire on you, so don't mess with me. That's political oppression out of fear. I'm, I'm going to protect myself, I'm going to protect my authority by dominating other people. And finally, when the Israelites become enslaved, it comes from Pharaoh's fear. Pharaoh said, look, the Israelite people are more numerous and powerful than we are. Come, let's deal shrewdly with them. Otherwise, they will multiply further. And when war breaks out, they will join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So the Egyptians assigned taskmasters over the Israelites to oppress them with forced labor. So the slavery also is motivated by this fear of death and this want for control. And what the biblical story tells us then 
If we recognize the role that the fear of death, just human mortality has to do with the way we treat other people, what we'll recognize is the problem is not the people in control, it is the desire for control itself. Because as you follow the story of the Old Testament, what ends up happening, God liberates, in one of the most important stories for, our, for liberation, God liberates the Israelites and he gives them their own land. And then it reaches a point under Solomon where they look ex- Solomon looks exactly like Pharaoh. Pharaoh is oppressing people. He, Pharaoh impre- uh, um, enslaves the Israelites. Or, sorry, Solomon enslaves the Israelites. Their own king does the same thing to them that happened to them before. What the story teaches us is that the structures or who's in charge is not the problem. Human nature is the problem. This is what Paul means in Ephesians when he says, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this darkness, against evil spiritual forces in the heavens. What he's saying is our, our fight isn't against flesh and blood. If you kick the bums out, more bums take charge, right? We're all bums, so whoever takes charge is gonna be, still be human. You don't fix the system by just changing who's holding the reins. The problem is people, and the problem is this darkness that enfolds us and holds power over us. And you can see this play out in human history. If you look at the revolutions that have fought against some of the most oppressive regimes in, in history, the French Revolution, the Russian Revolution, the Chinese Revolution, they all fought against legitimately horrible regimes before them. The king of France was terrible. He was a tyrant, and he, the nobles and the, the clergymen of the French Catholic Church, they dominated society and oppressed them. It was terrible. So the French revolted. And you know what happened to their revolution? It became terrible. Probably the, the, most, the biggest symbol we have for the oppression of royal and church authorities in Europe would be the Spanish Inquisition. You heard of the Spanish Inquisition? It was a project where the Spanish, they tried to root out heretics and false converters and they killed a whole bunch of people. And, you know, Mel, uh, Mel Brooks did a whole musical bit about it. It was terrible. No one expected it, but it was, it was terrible. Um, in the 45 years when it was at its height, they killed 814 people, which is one every 15 days. Okay? The French Revolution was founded on the ideal of equality and fraternity and liberty. And at the height of its violence, in one year, they killed 15,000 people. Why? Because they were terrified of losing power. And so anybody who might undermine the revolution got guillotined. 15,000 people, until finally the guy who was driving it got guillotined, and then it started to settle down. Same thing happened with the Russian Revolution, incredibly brutal, and set up a... a, 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 Stalin had already killed more people than Hitler before Hitler even got to power. Mao broke that record in China. What happens is you change the people who are in charge, the, the, the new people are still broken. So the biblical narrative tells us changing the people in charge doesn't help. Instead, the only solution is to build a community of people who are different, who don't fear death and don't crave control. You have to change people's nature. And that is exactly the kind of community that Paul has been teaching the Colossians to be throughout this letter. 
When he tells them things like, in Christ there is not Jew, uh, Greek and Jew, circumcision and uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free, but Christ is all and is in all. He's saying what, what unites you and what's most important about you is the fact that you're in Christ and you should treat each other that way. By the way, in um, Colossians, uh, 1 Corinthians, he also includes men and women. That the defining way that we treat each other is as brothers and sisters in Christ. Later on in Colossians 3, he says, Above all, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity in the church. And let the peace of Christ, to which you were all called in one body, rule your hearts. Then he says, Whatever you do, do it from the heart as something done for the Lord. And, oh, sorry. No, that was one too far. So what he's been doing throughout this book is he's been teaching the Christians to be in the middle of this oppressive society, to be a community of people who are not afraid of death and are not uh, uh, devoted to controlling each other. A society, a community that is completely countered to the way that the world thinks, to the fears that the world has. You'd be amazed at the power there is in being in a crowd and not being afraid of what everybody else is afraid of. Just not being afraid. And why shouldn't we be afraid? Well, Paul spends more time talking about slaves than anybody else in this passage. And I, but I think what he has to say to slaves is really the perspective that supports everything he's been saying throughout this passage. Here's what he says when he digs into the perspective that makes this possible. Whatever you do, do it from the heart as something done for the Lord and not for people, knowing that you will receive the reward of an inheritance from the Lord. You serve the Lord Christ for the wrongdoer will be paid back for whatever wrong he has done, and there is no favoritism. There's three things that he's saying in this passage. Number one, and it's all grounded in the fact, uh, in what we've just been talking about, about the fact that we don't have to fear death and we don't have to be in control of other people. Christians should serve where God has placed them. Because you don't need to be afraid that you're in the wrong place. See, when we want to make sure that our lives matter, that means we have to play a role in society that matters according to other people's measurement, right? If you want to be remembered after you die, you have to do the things that people remember you for. And nobody remembers you other than your kids for being a housewife. Nobody remembers you for being a janitor. No one remembers you. Like, there are all these things that we, would, we look down on because, and, or, we, or we don't look at at all because they're not memorable, even though they are the most important things that happen in our society, right? You know what's memorable? Is, they're memorable by their absence, right? A mother is, is always memorable by, oh, a plumber. <laughs> you really care about plumbers when you can't get one, right? But we get, we get focused on these being in positions that give us, make us memorable, make us important, because we think I've only got this one life, this one shot to matter, and so I'm, I have to hold on to something that makes me matter in other people's eyes. But the truth is that you already matter infinitely to God. And so you don't need to crave another position in order to matter. Now, that doesn't mean that you shouldn't change your position, but Paul gives us a more in-depth look at this in 1 Corinthians. He says, let each one live his life in the situation the Lord assigned when God called him. This is what I command in all the churches. Keeping God's commands is what matters. Let each of you remain in the situation to which he was called. Were you called while a slave? Don't let it concern you. 
But if you can become free, by all means, take the opportunity. For he who is called, as a, called by the Lord as a slave is the Lord's freeman. Likewise, he who is called as a free man is Christ's slave. You were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of people. Now, I find that interesting because he tells the slaves, if you're a slave, don't worry about not being a slave. But then he says, don't become slaves of people. What does he mean? I think what he's saying is that when we crave being remembered, when we crave positions of importance, that's actually a form of slavery to other people. When you decide that you're going to measure your worth by what other people care about, you will forever be enslaved to them. Even the most powerful people are slaves to the system that makes them powerful. Uh, you know, every politician and every celebrity is a slave to the people because the second that tweet from when they were teenagers surfaces, it's all gone. Or the second they say the wrong thing and other people turn on them, it's all gone. They're slaves. And if we're pursuing meaning by other people's definitions, we will forever be slaves to other people. See, don't be a slave to other people. Be a slave to God. And that means that you don't have to achieve things to matter to him. That's why he still says, you know, if you have an opportunity to become free, do it. But don't quest after it as if your life won't matter until you become free. Don't think that only liberation makes your life valuable. Because any life in any position, no matter how the world looks at you, matters because God is working through you. And the way God gets his kingdom into all the little nooks and crannies of this world is by calling people in all the little nooks and crannies of this world. So serve where God has placed you. Now, remember, so the, the key part of this to remember is that this system only works if Christians do it, obey Paul on both ends. Because really what, that, what it means when Paul says that I should love my wife and I should... Uh, I should not use my power over. I shouldn't be bitter. What that really means is that it shouldn't really be different that I've been given power as opposed to her, it, that the end result is the same. That what I've been given, I'm using for her benefit and not in a paternalistic way, but that the end result is the same. Just like if society decided wives are in charge, ideally then she would, she, that, our dynamic would be mutual so that it doesn't matter who culture gives the power to. So what I don't want you to hear when I say that we're supposed to serve where we are, that that's just saying those of you who are less powerful stay in your lane. That also means those of us that society has given power to, and we all fit both categories, we have a responsibility in both directions to not take advantage of the power that we've been given for ourselves, but to use it for others. The second thing that he's telling us here is that we need to trust and obey our true master. Paul emphasizes this again and again throughout these passages. He says, submit yourselves to your husbands as is fitting the Lord. That's a qualifier. That means submit to your husband in a way that pleases the Lord. That doesn't mean that your husband owns you and gets to tell you whatever he wants you to do. There are ways, especially if you're married to a non-Christian there are, there are limitations there, right? You're supposed to submit in a way that pleases the Lord. The same thing with children, obeying their parents in everything for this pleases the Lord. That means that those are supposed to go together so that if, if your parents are telling you to do something that doesn't please the Lord, you don't obey your parents to please the Lord, right? 
It's a qualifier to remind you that this is not, you're not doing this because that person deserves authority over you. You're not doing it because you can't make these decisions for yourselves. You're doing this out of obedience to Christ, which is exactly what the other person should be doing too. Because he also says, slaves, obey your human masters and everything because you serve the Lord Christ. Don't obey them because your master deserves it. Obey them because you're serving Christ and Christ has put you in that place for a reason. But also, masters, you have a master in heaven. And the most terrifying statement in this passage for masters is that God shows no favoritism. The world may give you latitude as a master. God's not going to. He's going to hold you to account for the way you've used that authority. And I would say there is a lot of modern equivalence between masters and slaves and employers and employees today. Really any power dynamic that we have. That we, we are not called to serve the system or to serve the people that the system may have placed over us. We are called to serve God in the places he's put us. Keep in mind also that I'm referring back to the way society has put authority in our culture our society puts authority in our culture in a very different way than Paul's did. And Paul is not telling us to add authority into that. So the power dynamics now are very different. But ultimately what Paul is saying is serve your true master, God. And finally, notice what he says here. The core of the different perspective that Paul is giving here is that it's eternal. He says you will receive the reward of an inheritance from the Lord. And the wrongdoer will be paid back for whatever wrong he has done, and there is no favoritism. See, the root of all this, the root of Paul's different perspective is his math is different. Paul is doing eternal math. And the perspectives that get sucked into, we have to keep the hierarchy, or we have to abolish the hierarchy, those are ultimately fearful attempts to control what's here and now as if what's here and now ultimately matters. If it's all that matters. But if we have an eternal perspective in mind, then we see what is present as an opportunity for us to reach others and to build the kingdom of God, which is what will have much longer consequences than what we may do to the authority structures of our day now. That that God has placed you in a position where you can love others in a radical way and placed us in a position where we as a community can handle the power we've been given in such a loving way that we stand out and we draw people to the kingdom of God. That's what ultimately has eternal significance. One of the criticisms that, that people will level against religion, um, in this case, and... and um, Karl Marx said it most famously that religion is the opiate of the masses, that religion is used to keep the poor in their position and to keep them from rebelling. And that's, when I say that we're not supposed to overthrow the structures, I'm not saying that we just accept the system. What I'm saying is that the way we move against the system is not by rearranging power, but by building this radically different community. And that radically different community has absolutely transformed our culture in so many ways. It was the influence of Christianity that abolished slavery in Europe in uh, the ancient world without fighting a civil war. It was the influence of Christianity that created the first rules of combat that said you couldn't kill women and children 
and actually got people to follow them. It was the church that did that. Like the power of the church being a community of people who are willing to do what is right and not simply try to be in control of everything has radically transformed our community in so many ways that I'm absolutely not telling you to passively accept systems of oppression. What I'm telling you is that the way that truly changes things is to trust in God and to trust in his eternal reward and to play the, take the eternal perspective. It's interesting that the Russian Revolution, um, it was bloody and it was intense and they totally recreated their society and, and all these different things. And one of the things they did was they enforced atheism. And after 80, it was an officially atheist community, uh, country. And after 80 years, it was abolished. And when they compared the rates of atheism in Russia and the rest of Europe, it was like, and, and all the Soviet republics, it was like the same. Like 80 years of this revolution it actually had surprisingly little effect on the deep-seated roots of a community. Because so much of the, the fighting over the power structures ends up being surface-level things that don't really change things. What changes things is the transformation of people's hearts. So what I want to ask you as we close is, are you, first of all, are you part of the community of Jesus Christ. Because that's ultimately the, that's the source of our hope. It's not in what we can get the government to do or the way we can change the power structures, but our hope is in being part of the community of Jesus Christ. That means we, we know Jesus, we're saved by Jesus, and we're drawn together to be a people. So my hope is not in my American citizenship, it's in my citizenship in heaven. If you don't have that hope, today is the best day for you to ex accept the call of Christ to give your life to him. The next question is, have you given up the quest for control? And all of us have the same answer. The answer is no, because that is a lifelong battle and it's, it varies. But the quest for control means either I want to gain more power than I currently have, or I want to use the power that I'm given to keep in control. No matter where you are in the hierarchy, you're going to be anxious about control. Some of the people with the most power are also the most insecure. And as Christians, if we truly believe what the Bible says about Jesus and what the Bible says about our eternal fate, then we should be able to give up control because what we've learned is the world is worse when humans are in control, right? It's better when God is in control. So are you fighting against your own need to control things? And finally, are you seeking the agenda of God in your life? Are you looking for what makes me, um, what satisfies my need for, uh, to feel important or to do something? Or am I seeking the agenda of God in my life. Because here's the thing, you may or may not be able to achieve your own agenda for your own life. If you want to be the best at something, if you want to get an, a, a promotion that only one person can get, you may or may not get that. But you absolutely can achieve what God has set for you in your life because God puts you where he wants you to be 
to achieve it, and he will give you what you need. He will work through you to achieve it, and you can achieve it wherever you are. You can achieve it in any job. You can achieve it with any physical ability, with any mental capacity, because God, will, God is putting you in a place intentionally. So if you want something that you absolutely can achieve and absolutely can find meaning in, regardless of what circumstances throw at you, you should be seeking the agenda of God, which is a very, very difficult thing to do. So I challenge you to ask yourself, whose agenda am I following? And what would it look like for me to shift from my agenda to God's agenda? And I'll let you ponder that simple little puzzle as I invite our worship team to come up. If you want to give your life to Christ, you can come up during the song, or you can, if you want to make a decision to connect with God or with this church, that's what the red card in, in the seat back in front of you is for. If you want to join a group that is going to, um, where we get together and we encourage each other to grow in Christ and to, um, to know him better and to live more like him, that's what the green cards are for. And if you want an opportunity to serve uh, in some way through the church, especially if you're interested in serving in the food bank, uh, that's what the blue card is for, and you can fill that out and either leave it on your seat or put it in the boxes in the back. Um, so now I will invite you to stand for our.